Welcome to the Second Age Podcast, your guide to Tolkien's world of Middle-earth. I'm David. And I'm John. And this is Chapter 1, Origins of Numenor. In this episode, we've got three segments, the history of Tolkien's writing, a brief discussion of some literary themes, and then a deep dive into the background of the island of Numenor. Before we get started, here's a quick reminder that you can send your feedback to secondage at baldmove.com, and we'll get to those questions on the final episode, which will be a Q&A. And if you want to talk Tolkien with us sooner, join us on the Bald Move Discord server, link in the description of the podcast, or you can find it over at the Bald Move website at baldmove.com. And be sure to get all the Bald Move and Lorehounds coverage of Rings of Power by subscribing to the Dug Too Deep podcast feed. We're going to be releasing exclusive content on this feed, so you don't want to miss out. Click on the link in the show notes or search for Dug Too Deep in your podcast application of choice. So let's get started with a discussion of the literary history of the collected works of Tolkien and Middle-earth. All right, John, one of the things that we thought would be helpful for folks is if, if we talked a little bit about the publication history of a lot of these works, because it's not just The Lord of the Rings, the three books as we know them. There's a, there's a whole bunch more out there. So uh, I thought we would just talk about the core material that uh, Tolkien written and uh, was also compiled by uh, his son, Christopher? Yeah, that sounds good. I mean, the the breadth of this work is really a large part of why it's hard to approach at first. Right. And it's not like it was all written, you know, it it wasn't necessarily a like, oh, I've got an idea for a story. Boom, here's the story. I I was doing some reading on, on Tolkien's history. And basically in the period of around 1911 to 1930, when he's starting his family and he's in the army and in World War One and then working, he's learning new languages. He's writing short stories. Some of them are are certainly identifiable as Middle Earth related, but he's writing all kinds of stuff that that is like just all over the map in terms of mythology and folklore and, and, and history. Yeah, he loved classic literature, like classical literature, mm-hmm. old English things. At some point, he wanted to be a poet for a short period. He was mm-hmm. writing all things everywhere, short stories, mythology, uh, mythology largely inspired by his language writing because he felt like a language needed a people to speak it. And so there's <laughs> just so much yeah. there. Yeah. And I, I think that to me, what jumped out as a sort of a salient point on that is that when he does write that first sort of famous line of the the hobbits like out popped a hole uh, you know the hobbit popped out of a hole or whatever that was somewhere around the 19, 1930 it's not like he was doing something else and then then boom like lightning struck this it, it's not sui generis it's like it's not something from nothing he had been steeped in and immersed in in writing short stories fiction mythology language so it's like this this had all just been stewing on the, on the stovetop for uh, for a, quite a long time yeah i'd say so i mean i don't think he originally intended the hobbit to be even linked to his mythology that eventually became the silmarillion he was just trying to write a fun mm-hmm. story for his kids. 
Right. And then, and then when that draft did get passed around and, and ultimately handed over to a uh, publisher, the publisher kind of went nuts for it, I think. So that happened. So he the, the reported history is somewhere around 1930 is when he writes that first fragment. And then in 1937, uh, The Hobbit, as we know it, is published. And then in 1954. So then that's an interesting thing, because as he's working on that the publisher's like, yes, give us more. And isn't that then there's some sort of interplay between the Silmarillion and Lord of the Rings, right? Yeah. So he had wanted to go to the Silmarillion next because he saw that as his main okay. work. The Hobbit was sort of his side project. Interesting. And he had been building stories in the Silmarillion because you have to remember it's a collection of all these these vast histories and narratives. Mm-hmm. Uh, he'd been doing that since he was in the war. So really long time at this point. So by the 1940s, right. he has decades on the Silmarillion. And he's sending parts to his publisher, and the publisher looks at it and says, "I mean, it's it's interesting, but it's it's a little biblical, and it's a little <laughs> it's a little not Hobbit-like. How am I going to sell this to the same readers?" Right, and people were hungry for the Hobbit. Yeah, I think that they sort of misunderstood the role of hobbits and why people love Tolkien. I think that that the publisher thought mm. that the Hobbit itself was the key. The Hobbit was the key to linking Tolkien's brain sides between the storyteller and the the mythology guy. And there, Humphrey Carpenter, in his biography of J.R.R. Tolkien, really goes into this deeply. But I don't think that hobbits were the key of Tolkien. The, the key to Tolkien is how lived in the world is. And that key mm. lies in the mythology. Mm. Interesting. And so ironically, as much as he wanted to get the Cimmerillion pushed out with the Lord of the Rings story, the Cimmerillion doesn't actually get published until 1977. Right, until after he's dead. So quite a ways down. Yeah, after he's dead. He, he passes away in, uh, what, 63. So we've got The Hobbit in 37, Lord of the Rings, the three volumes of Lord of the Rings in 54. There's a very strange side note, which we <laughs> I don't know how to necessarily frame. We have The Adventures of Tom Bombadil and Other Verses from the Red Book, and that's published in 1962. And I think the whole Tom Bombadil thing, everybody in the Tolkien world just seems to want to just put that in a little bubble and set it off to the side. <laughs> Nobody's really sure what to do with Tom Bombadil. Yeah, I'm not going to have the answer for you on this podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> Okay, fair enough. All right, so we have uh, that in 62. Then we have the Cimmerillion in 77. And then in 1980, we have something called Unfinished Tales that gets published. Yeah, Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-Earth. It is sort of mm-hmm. a, a collection of... Some of the some of the stories that are unfinished, you know, that that Tolkien had written and shown to his son Christopher. Got it. And Christopher and Christopher at this point is is acting as his um, not only literary agent but um, master of legendarium. Like he's actually bringing stuff together and interpreting and writing and and he is a huge. Christopher Tolkien himself has this huge impact on his father's work. Like we would not have what we have without him and all the work that he did to bring all of this published stuff. Um, you know, bring it all to light. Yeah, he was the guardian of of the whole Middle-earth universe. And the publishing of Unfinished Tales was a big deal for him because his father had been working on the Silmarillion before he passed, and Christopher had worked with him on other projects. Mm -hmm. But his father had given him explicit permission to finish the Silmarillion and publish it if he died before he finished it. Mm. Although Tolkien didn't really expect to die when he did. He, He thought he had a few more years. Right. But Christopher made the decision 
mm-hmm. to publish Unfinished Tales on his own accord. Mm. And he writes a, a letter at the beginning of Unfinished Tales where he talks about all that went into this decision to, to release more. And I think I think he made the right decision to begin releasing things, although it certainly did complicate our work here in sorting through the, the text. <laughs> all the stuff. That's right. So in 80, between 1983 and 1996, Christopher then compiles a 12-volume series that not only analyzes all of this stuff, but actually brings forth new stuff. So it's both in-universe and out-universe, or it's both analysis and story. And that's like, I mean, you could count it as a single thing, but it's 12 separate volumes. Um, So that's a pretty significant piece of work. Yeah, and that's a lot of Christopher going through his dad's writings, but also sort of recounting conversations that he had with his father. Mm-hmm. If you if you read a lot of his editorializing in it, he's talking about, yeah, I, th- I think my dad meant this here, and uh, this might have been a typo. And <laughs> so it's, it's, mm. it's a little hard to sift through because things aren't totally consistent either. I mean, even if you look at Unfinished Tales alone, the accounts of Galadriel are just completely inconsistent, and you have to just choose one. And, and so that's why, you know, when I see people talking about their portrayal of Galadriel in the show, I say, well, Tolkien didn't know what he wanted to, to do with Galadriel, so how, how are we going to know? <laughs> right, exactly. So then in 2007, we've got uh, something called The Children of Hurin? 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 Something like that. Something like that. And that is, apparently that was an incomplete story that was in Unfinished Tales, but then uh, I guess it was Christopher who, who brought that out as a book in its own right? Yeah, and the story is in The Silmarillion 2 under a different title. Mm-hmm. It's the first story that he actually wrote in universe, in the, in the Silmarillion portion, chronologically, that he wrote in his real life. It's not the first story chronologically in the Middle-Earth universe. Right, but it was written sometime in like the mid 1900s somewhere, I believe. Yeah, I think I think towards when he was in the war. Uh, but it's it's a really mm-hmm. uncharacteristically dark tale for him. There's like incest and murder and betrayals, and it's it, there's like a curse on somebody. So if you want the darker side of Tolkien, if you want Tolkien going all G.R.R. Martin on it, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. read the Children of Huron. And uh, there's there's a really great audiobook version with Christopher Lee narrating it. Nice. Okay. So uh, very biblical, very Old Testament there. Then in 2017, we've got Berrien and Luthien, which is also something that's found in Silmarillion. That's also in the Silmarillion, yeah. Uh, the, the thing about Berrien and Luthien is that he wrote that several times in different forms. He has sort of an epic poem of it. Mm-hmm. He has a more narrative version. He has a more historical version of it. And they're not all consistent, but they also all add a little bit of something to the table. Got it. And is isn't Berrien and Luthien on their gravestones? Yes, that's on their gravestones. That's you know his his wife was the inspiration for Luthien, the most beautiful of all the children of Iluvatar. Interesting. Got it. Okay. And then the last thing that we've got sort of published within this this boundary of of Arda, Middle Earth, whatever, is the Fall of Gondolin. And uh, I don't know much about this one at all either. And this is something that's been pulled out of Unfinished Tales? It's also in the Silmarillion, just to a lesser extent. Mm-hmm. It's the fall of this okay. Elvish city uh, in, mm-hmm. in Middle-earth. And it's sort of how Middle-earth, the Elvish area of Beleriand, got all messed up by the time we get to it. Interesting. Okay. So if one were to read the history of middle earth you know sort of chronologically in world as i understand it it would go the Cimmerillion, the children of huron berrien and luthien 
The Fall of Gondolin, Unfinished Tales, The Hobbit, and then The Lord of the Rings to to wrap it all up. Yeah, and I'll say that um, certain things in Unfinished Tales and the history of Middle-earth will jump all over the place in the timeline. Right. But other than that, I think that's a, that's a good timeline of it. Although, I don't, I don't know if I would read it chronologically because it's just so so dense. And then Children of Huron, uh, Baron and Luthien, and The Fall of Gondolin are all stories included within the Silmarillion, too. Interesting. Okay. And then just in their publication history, they were just brought out and, and uh, propped up sort of on their own, probably in a little bit more consumable format. Yeah. I mean, it, it's kind of odd because, you know, the Baron and Luthien book... I, I told you they he wrote it in a few different styles. It includes all those styles, including notes from Christopher. Got it. Okay. Interesting. Well, so for anybody who's interested in getting more into the publication history and, and the life of Tolkien himself, the Tolkien Society, that's TolkienSociety.org. You can just Google search that. Has some really great resources. They've got a great timeline. They've got a complete bibliography for Tolkien. And that's where I've been sourcing a lot of, of this information, just trying to skim off the, the most uh, salient points. But as you said, John, like the it, it there there is no, you know, where is canon and where are the wall, you know, where, you know, the walls are very permeable in terms of what is included and when things were written and, and how they were written. But I think for, for most folks to get a sense that they're sort of these seven-ish books that if you were to read them in line, that would sort of give you the, uh, a fuller picture of, of, uh, of the history of Arda and Middle-earth. Yeah, and if you want to go deeper, I would say start with a question that you have and just look for the answer in the writings. I wouldn't go reading the history of Middle-earth like it's a set of novels. Either. Mm. And when we get to our Q&A segment, I'll say there are going to be multiple answers for a lot right. of questions because of the breadth of this right. work. So that's a good point, too, yeah, the, on the feedback show. So uh, you can send feedback and questions to secondage at baldmove.com, and that'll be the uh, last chapter in our podcast that we'll do, and, and hopefully we'll have uh, one of the uh, Jim or Aaron or both of them uh, with us, and we'll be able to go through a lot of your questions and feedback. So that's uh, secondage at baldmove.com. Okay, John, one of the things that we um, also talked about doing on each of the chapters was to touch on a few of the theme, recurrent themes that we're going to see throughout um, not only the, the Rings of Power, uh, but also that carry off into uh, Lord of the Rings. So one of the ones that we identified that was pretty strong is this idea that faith is rewarded. So what does that mean? What are we, what are we thinking of? What's how does that come into play in the stories with this idea that you know of keeping faith and you're going to get rewarded? Yeah, let's bring in Tolkien the Catholic for a okay. little sit-in. <laughs> hello, yes, and uh, hello, Mister Tolkien. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we're going to go to church with him, where everything is rewarded because of your faith, not necessarily because of your acts. Mm. And so, you know, you go to confession, go to church, go to the holy days. That's how you get rewarded in Catholicism. Mm-hmm. Bring that into the world of Arda. Mm-hmm. Having these symbols of faith around will lead to rewards from the Valar and showing your faith through actions, through through being good to the Valar and being good to each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there are a few symbols of faith in this story that really hold the Numenorians to the, the faith with the Valar. Mm-hmm. And those would be the white tree, mm-hmm. which we'll talk a little bit about later, but you'll recognize it from Gondor. Right. 
the titles of the kings when they go from Elvish, which is a faithful title, mm-hmm. into a Numenorean language. That's sort of a move away from faith. Mm-hmm. And then the move away from prayers and offerings on holy days at the shrine, that is another move away from faith. So we want to see these people be faithful with the Valar, faithful with Eru Luvatar, the creator god, in order to get rewarded. Mm, okay, so it's 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 um, it's more about uh, um, uh, uh, going through the act of doing something that a faithful person would do. That's the that's where the importance is being placed on. Yeah, and you know, just to go back to Tolkien's mythological methods. Mm-hmm. He's trying to tell you a truth. Mm. You may not agree with that truth, but what is the truth he's trying to tell us in each of mm-hmm. these stories? I think that's a really important question to ask ourselves. Got it. And I think that that makes sense in when we look at the say when we take the, the at the end of the story, like of all of the the written stuff with Frodo and Sam, who was the most faithful was Sam, right? And in the end, he's rewarded. He's, you know, he, he gets to live in the Shire again, and he gets to um, enjoy the blessings of family and all of that kind of stuff. So we can really see that that is a strong theme all the way through. Oh, yeah. He wouldn't let Frodo go where he couldn't follow. Right. <laughs> okay, good. So as you're as we're talking about the Numenorians and uh, coming up uh, in in this uh, a later segment of this episode and throughout the future stuff, just keep that idea of faith is rewarded as kind of a construction part of the construction of Tolkien's world, and um, you'll be able to see in multiple places where that plays out. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be right back. Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Okay, John, let's talk about some big lore, the island of Numenor. Um, this is going to be a, probably a pretty big deal. We saw some, uh, I think, some shots in some of the pre-release information that we're definitely going to go to this island called Numenor. So it's kind of a big deal. And a lot of the Second Age revolves around this, I believe. Is that correct? Oh, yeah. It's a, it's a huge thing. It's, it's how we get... Uh, the heroes of the Second Age. It's how Sauron gets big. So this is sort of the root of a lot of the problems here. Got it. So before we start talking about Numenor itself, let's do a quick review on some of the key players. So in our prologue chapter, we talked about the Valar. You want to um, key us into who are some of the, the main Valar players here? What are the Valar and, and who are the main players? Yeah, just as a review, the Valar are the powers of the world. They're the holy ones. They're the higher of these Ainur these this sort of pantheon of gods who are ruling Arda, the planet. And there's really only two that you need to remember for this part of the story. Mm-hmm. The first one is going to be Manwe, who's mm-hmm. the king of the Valar. He's the good guy. He's uh, he's the Zeus of this pantheon, the Got Odin, it. if you will. Nice. 
And he's um, the master of eagles. Uh, so if you see the eagles in the Lord of the Rings, the big ones that are helping Gandalf, uh, they, he's in charge of those. Okay. And the second one is Melkor, who's also known as Morgoth. That's his Lucifer-Satan distinction. Right. Uh, and he is, at the time of the Second Age, he's cast into the void. He's cast outside of creation. He can't do anything to us now. But his influence is still felt through Sauron. Uh, and and so those are the two major players that you need to remember for this. Got it. And then just to touch on, so Melkor Morgoth, there was a big war with him in the first age. Is that the the right fr- uh, time framing there? Yeah, it's the very end of the first age. He was okay. causing trouble all over the first age. So okay. it, it wasn't the first rodeo that the Valar had with him. <laughs> <laughs> okay, but uh, the big one was uh, this war at the very end of the first stage, in which the Valar finally take everything seriously, and they decide to take back Middle Earth from the influence of Morgoth, who had basically just started to rule the area. Okay, let's just touch in a little bit about that because I believe there are some big there there are some setup elements in the first age that lead into this, right? With Arendil and there's a whole history of the Silmarils, which is how the Silmarillion gets its name. Okay, we won't go t- all the way into that. No, but because right, this is the second age, not the first age. <laughs> right, right. It's a yeah. huge. Most of the Silmarillion is this story of the Silmarils, and then it's only towards the end, the last two chapters, that we get the second age. Got it. So, what are the Silmarils? The Silmarils are these gems made by this elf named Feanor. Mm-hmm. You don't have to remember him. It's okay. Right. So, they were made by Feanor out of these trees that had wisdom, and we'll get to the trees a little bit later. Okay. Uh, but they had this great light. It was the light that was before the sun and the moon were created, and he made them out of this great light, and they were the last traces of this light after Morgoth had destroyed the trees. Okay. So Morgoth had taken the Silmarils at some point, and there was a whole back and forth of who had what Silmaril. There were all these heroes, but in the end, there was one last Silmaril that the the men and the elves had, and that went with Arendil, mm-hmm. who was this half-elf, half-man, with a little bit of Maiar blood. Remember that the Maiar are the lower demigods. Right. And he takes it across the sea... Mm-hmm. to Ammon. Remember, that's the area all the way to the west where the holy people live. Right. And he says, come help us. We're ready to defeat Morgoth. We need your help, though. He's a Valar. We need the help of the Valar. Okay. And he speaks for both men and elves. So they do that. They come. They they help. So the Edine, which are the Dunedain, these men who have these extra long lifespans, who are are more sort of heroic, they help the Valar defeat Morgoth. But not all the men do that. So these are these special men who have helped the Valar conquer evil, basically. Okay, got it. So faith is rewarded. We've already talked about that theme a little bit. Mm -hmm. And after Arendil goes to the Valar and says, help us, they help. And the men help, the Adain help. Now, Arendil is set into the sky Mm -hmm. with the Silmaril to have the Silmaril forever. And he becomes a star. Got it. Now, right now, Middle-earth is just in havoc because Morgoth has had control of it for, like, thousands of years, really. He's had, he's had his influence going. A ton of the men are not doing well. The elves are largely exiles. And it's really kind of a terrible place to live. Uh-huh. So the Valar want to reward the Edine. Mm-hmm. So they send Arendil into the sky, as I said. Mm-hmm. And he becomes the guiding star for them to reach this island that they create for them. 
and they call that island Numenor. Got it. So they, it's an island that gets um, kind of created out of nothing in the middle of the seas? Yeah, so this pantheon of gods, they sort of raise it out of the ocean, and they put flowers on it, they put fauna on it, flora on it, and they ready it for them. They make it this paradise that is a little bit closer to Ammon than it is to Middle-earth, mm-hmm. but it's still in the water. But they also tell them, you cannot come to Ammon. You're not immortal beings. You you have to stay on Numenor or go east to Middle-earth. Got it. Okay. Before we get into like a little bit more about the geography of the island and, and that kind of stuff, let's talk about the, um, you said, Edane? The Dunedain? Edain. Edain, yeah. right. And these are the this is Aragorn's lineage, right? He's ultimately descended from these people. These are the the men plus plus. These are like kings among men. Yeah, they are basically super powered men. Okay. They are rewarded for their help with the war against Morgoth and for right. their friendship with elves with these extra long lives. Mm-hmm. They generally have about three times the normal length of life okay. of regular men. And they begin to wither around 200 years old. Now, they usually die within 10 years of beginning to wither. So they're basically just healthy men in their prime. And I say men, again, as the race of men, not as just male As as in the sex, right, yeah. So they begin to wither around 200 years. Within 10 years of decline, they basically die. So they they aren't sick. They aren't old very long. They live really good lives. Then... We now have to talk about sort of how the the line of kings began, because the line of kings Mm -hmm. lives about 400 years before they start to wither. Okay, so they're even plus, plus, plus. They're extra, extra mid. Right. And now let's go back to Arendil, that guy in the sky, the guy who's half-elf, half-man. Who has the gem, right? Mm -hmm. He's got the Silmaril forever. Right. Right. He had two sons. Okay. And those sons, one you will recognize, is Elrond. Okay, yes. Right, is in Lord of the Rings, Lord right. of Rivendell. Right. Solid dude. And the other one is Elros. Okay. Now, these two children of Arendil were given the choice by the Valar of whether to be men or elves. Elrond obviously chose elf because we know him from the Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. But his brother Elros chose to be a man, and he was created as a Dunedain. Okay. So he was the first king of Numenor. Okay. And he rules for, you know, until he's about 500. He's he's the longest living one. Okay. And then his line lives around 400 years. Okay. Got it. All right. So we have the race of men. We have, uh, and among those men, there were some men who helped defeat Morgoth, and they're um, uh, given this island, Numenor, to live on, this paradise. And then of those men, there is Elros, who is the uh, human son of Arendil, and he establishes the first line of kings among the Dunedain. And he's got this extra, extra long life. And so now the men are on the island of Numenor? Yeah, so now the men have gotten to the island of Numenor, and they right. settle it. And so now I guess we can talk a little bit about the island. Yeah. Yeah, so as I mentioned before, they're prohibited from sailing west to Ammon, the Undying Lands. Uh, because they're they're not elves, they're not Valar, they're not Maiar. Okay, but they are allowed to sail east if they want. Uh, and and the island of Numenor is a paradise. You know why would they want to go anywhere really? All right, so this island paradise, Numenor, that's sort of created from nothing as a reward for these men. It's in the middle of the ocean, and 
to the east is Middle Earth as we know it, the Shire and all of that stuff. Yeah, that's right. Although there's not really a Shire just yet. No, right. But like that's the world, the, the lands that we know it is in, in Lord of the Rings uh, which, um, from that aspect. And then going the other way to the west is this holy land where people don't die, but mortal men and mortal creatures aren't allowed to go there. Right. So they're not okay. allowed to settle there. They're not allowed to go there without permission. Got it. The undying lands, to be clear, do not preserve anyone. They're just where undying beings live. Huh. Interesting. That's how they okay. get their name. Got it. Okay, so it's like if I if I showed up there, I wouldn't then like live immortally until I left there. Like it's not going to bestow that power on me. Yeah, and I think that's something that's kind of misunderstood when people watch or read the Lord of the Rings too. Is they see Frodo going off to the Undying Lands, they're like, ah, oh, he and Bilbo are going to live happily forever. No, no, no. It's just that there's no sickness there. That's why they brought them there. They right. sort of they can heal. Right, and and there's no suffering, sort of so to speak. Right, right. But they're still going to die their normal lifespans. Okay, got it. Makes sense. Okay, so let's get back to the geography of Numenor. So we've got this island in the middle of the sea. To the west is the Undying Lands, and to the east is Middle Earth as we know it from Lord of the Rings. Right. Now, I you can go online, I, and I did this earlier, you can just put in a you know uh, Google search for a map of Numenor, and then you get lots of maps. And so we've got this island, and it sort of looks like a five-pointed star. Yes, it's a five-pointed star. And if I could recommend another book with maps, The Atlas of Middle-Earth is a really excellent resource if you really want to look at all these things. And it has a lot of explanations of okay. where people are moving at different times, how battles are happening. So that's another recommendation I'd put out there. Got it. Uh, okay. But but yeah, Numenor is this five-pointed star. It's got five major areas, but there's mm-hmm. really only two areas where things are really happening. Okay. So Arandor is the king's land. Mm-hmm. And that's probably going to be where we're seeing most of what's happening in the show. Okay. And uh, in the on this five-star point... Um, um, mental image where is arendor uh where can i sort of locate that that's the east coast the east coast got it so the side closer to middle earth right okay so that was always the the seat of the king so armenelos is the city of kings it was established by elros okay uh and it was always the most populous area of numenor got it although the whole thing was settled pretty much okay in the center of the island Uh uh-huh there's a natural shrine a mountain Mm-hmm. created by the Valar, which is a shrine to Eru Iluvatar, who we talked about as this big creator god. I'm getting strong uh, uh, Old Testament vibes here. This is the temple in Jerusalem, if you will. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Mr. Tolkien, we are not trying to create an allegory, but you did so yourself. Right. <laughs> <laughs> we got this big holy mountain in the middle, with a, that's a shrine. Yes, we have the big holy mountain in the middle that's a shrine, and uh, anyone can go there to pray, though nobody can speak there, except the king, who speaks there on holy days three times a year. Okay. Much like the high priest in the Holy of Holies <laughs> in the Temple of Jerusalem would uh, one time a year. Right. But there are also a, fun, a, a little bit of fun facts about this mountain uh anytime anyone prayed at the shrine some of manway's eagles came mm-hmm. and would would perch up and then if if the king came to do his actual prayer they would circle in the sky basically and be the watchers of manway okay and manway is the king is the head angel or the head um valar 
Right. He's and, Zeus. He's this head of right. this pantheon. Right. And then we still have uh, Eru Luvatar above him. Right. And yeah. he's sort of, remember, he's removed right. from the governance of Middle-earth. He's not doing much, although we have hints that he's doing things at times. Right. Okay. Got it. All right. So we got eagles circling. We've got a king uh, at a, this natural shrine. What else is going on on the, on the mountain here? Well, at the base you have Noirinin. I think I'm saying that right. Uh-huh. It's the Valley of Tombs. Mm. And so those are where all the kings of Numenor are buried. Very mm. Egyptian. And I should actually make clear kings and queens of Numenor because mm-hmm. it passes to the eldest child, whether it is a king or a queen. Okay. Got it. Now, anything else important on the island here? Well, we've got Andustar, which is the western area of Numenor. That's the west coast. Okay. And that's closer to the Undying Lands. Right. And so the capital city is Andunier, mm-hmm. and that is where the faithful are. Now, those are the the men of Numenor, the Numenorians that are faithful the entire time to the elves and to the Valar and to Eru Iluvatar. So they never get caught up in any funny business that happens later. So let's put a pin in that, because I think that's going to be important to come back to later, because uh, I think that that comes into play in, in some of the political machinations that, that happen. But let's talk a little bit about the culture of the men on the island of Numenor. Yeah, that sounds good. So uh, we can talk a little bit about the kings first. Okay. So the kings and queens of Numenor had a scepter mm-hmm. as a symbol of power rather than a crown. And they also wore a jewel above their brow mm-hmm. rather than a crown. Okay. And that was in the fashion of Aldarian and Arendus. If anyone wants to go deeper on this at home, it's a story in Unfinished Tales of Numenor and Middle-earth that Amazon doesn't have the rights to, so they probably won't get to it. Okay. But that is canon uh, uh, written by uh, by Tolkien. Canon is a funny thing in oh, Tolkien. <laughs> it is, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so now that we have a grip on some of the kings of Numenor and the queens of Numenor, we can talk a little bit about the general common men. Uh, they were great mariners. They were mm-hmm. taught shipbuilding by the elves. The elves of Tol Arisea, which is this island by Ammon, it's where the elves live in the Undying Lands, largely. They would come and visit Numenor and teach them craft, teach them shipbuilding. And at some point, the men of Numenor began to go to Middle-earth and teach the men there how to live better. And they ended up being seen as these kings above men. Got it. So the elves would come to Numenor and educate the Dúnedain there, who would then go further east to Middle-earth and then interact with the people there and and bring the sort of skipping stone, the knowledge from the elves over to the more mundane uh, folks all the way in the east. Yeah, and you have to remember that the Valar have basically forsaken Middle-earth. They have not been doing anything good with it. They're really mad at the men of Middle-earth for not doing the right thing oh, during the war okay. with Morgoth. They're, they're mad at the elves because they're, they're exiles because they defied the Valar, basically. Okay. They're not happy with almost anybody on Middle-earth right now. So Interesting. Okay. That's why they're focusing all this paradise, all this goodwill towards Numenor. Oh. And so the Numenorians are the ones who are basically acting as the, as the givers of grace on Middle-earth. Interesting. Okay, that's that's a real penny drop for me right there. That sort of clears up a, a, a lot about it. So basically, the folks that were all the way over Middle Earth, they didn't help defeat Morgoth, but these men did. So like, hey, here's a paradise. We'll give you all kinds of knowledge. We'll give you a great place to live. And then these men took it upon themselves. Well, let's show a little grace to the folks over in Middle Earth and see if we can improve their lot. Yeah. And 
I think that the decision to forsake Middle Earth is something that will continue to bite the Valar in their tuckus <laughs> for a long time. Okay, perfect. Right, and that's and then ultimately we end up to Lord of the Rings, right, with that storyline. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so we've got we've got the men in Numenor teaching the people of Middle Earth all kinds of cool stuff that they in turn learn from the elves. Yeah, and so the the island of Numenor itself, the weather is perfect year-round, you know, mm-hmm. for whatever needs the Numenorians have. There are flowers called Eleanor mm-hmm. on Numenor, which were given to them by the by the elves of Tol Arisea. Didn't Sam name his daughter Eleanor? He did. He had seen the flowers in Lothlorien. Oh, Galadriel yeah. wears them in her crown sometimes, and they grow uh, in Lothlorien. And they're, they're brought there from Numenor. Nice. Okay. Nice, nice little things that he's woven through all of these uh, these different places and time in all the books. Yeah, something that I always appreciate about Tolkien is that every fact generally has a backstory mm-hmm. and has a reason for being there. Right, right. So that's probably why it took him forever to finish the things. Right. He's just enraged that he can't make everything match up entirely. <laughs> Ironic, because it's his own creation, right? Like it didn't. It's not like he's trying to make some engineering piece work. You know, it's like this is his own creation. So. Uh, that's pretty funny. Yeah. All right. So we, we've got uh, you've got some flowers. We've got a king. Now, isn't there a tree uh, around? Some trees feature into into this storyline here. It's all about the trees. It's all about you the know trees. Tolkien. Yeah. So there's a, a court in Armenelos, the king's court. Mm-hmm. It holds Nimloth. You don't really have to remember the names of the trees, so okay. let that wash over you. But it holds Nimloth, the white tree of Numenor. Mm-hmm. Where else have we seen white trees? Right, well, in Gondor, right? Yeah. Right, so it's the same source mm-hmm. uh, of tree. Mm-hmm. It comes originally from Tol Arisea, mm-hmm. uh, where, where that tree was modeled after the original two trees that I talked about the Silmarils were made from the light of. Ah, uh, interesting. Okay, got it. So trees, light, gems, we've got trees on, on Numenor, we've got trees in, ultimately in Gondor, so like a, a very important element that, that runs through the whole storyline. Yeah, the trees are sort of the symbol of unity with elves and unity with the Valar and unity with Eru Luvatar. It's all this faithful business, you know, faith is rewarded. Mm-hmm. So watch out for the trees as we go on, because that's going to be a symbol of faith. Got it. So... Um, Let's talk a little bit more about the trees, too. We've got two trees in Valinor? Yes, two trees in Valinor originally Mm -hmm. in the first age. Okay. And they were what lit the world before the sun and moon. They were called Telperion and Lorlin. They were destroyed by Morgoth. Mm. uh, But before that, the Silmarils were made from their light by Feanor. Right. But they are destroyed at this point. And there's a tree that's modeled after their beauty. In Tol Arisea, mm-hmm. that tree is called Celeborn. Don't mm-hmm. worry about the name. Mm-hmm. And the elves bring the Numenorians a sapling of it, which becomes the White Tree of Numenor. And later we'll see there's going to be a sapling of that White Tree of Numenor that becomes the White Tree of Gondor. Got it. So the trees themselves aren't necessary. Don't necessarily bestow any sort of magical power or healing or anything like this. But it's this very powerful. A uh, psychological symbol of unity and strength? Yeah, psychological symbol. And also, remember, Manway is sending his eagles above the mountain. Mm-hmm. So he's watching. Mm-hmm. Uh, people can, these gods are on the planet at this point. Right. And they can see everything going on. So this symbolism is very meaningful. The symbolism of faith is meaningful to gain favor with the Valar. Interesting. Okay. 
So I think that now broaches an interesting subject because even though these, you know, uh, uh, men among men, the Dunedain here, they are not necessarily unified either, right? So there are a couple factions that we have to talk about. We have the Faithful, which are on the West Coast because the West Coast is where the elves were coming in. Right. And they are located in the city of Andunia, right, which is a port city. And we have Isildur, who you might remember from the Lord of the Rings. He's the guy who struck down Sauron, who who took cut the ring off his finger. Although in reality, uh, in the in the books in canon, it was Elendil and Gilgalad who destroyed Sauron, and he just cut the ring off. Okay, got it. So they they uh, compressed that a little bit for the movies. Yeah, which is fine. Yeah, it it doesn't really matter so much who did it out of the faithful. Just remember, the faithful are the ones who are are keeping their goodwill with the Valar and with the elves. And his dad, Elendil, who mm-hmm. I just mentioned, he's one of the faithful. And his father, so Isildur's grandfather, Amundil, is sort of the leader of the faithful at this point. Okay. The only other faithful you really need to remember is Anarion, which is Isildur's brother. Okay, I'll try to remember. <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> yeah, because we're going to touch on it later again, too. So we've got the faithful... Who's opposite of them? Yeah, so there are these loyalists to the king. Uh, at the end of Numenor, which we'll get to, there's this king who's going against the Valar. That's what sort of initiates the fall. Mm-hmm. And there's the loyalists there. And they're on the east coast. Got it. I will mention that the faithful are forced to relocate to the east port of Romena eventually. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we'll get more into detail on that in the next episode. Okay. All right, so we've got the faithful who are keeping faith with the elves and the Valar and the, and the will of the creator god. And then we have some other men who are on the east side of this island, and they're more they're keeping faith with the king, not necessarily with the creation powers of this world. So their their loyalty is more to uh, an individual rather than to the creative pow- the creating powers. Is that right? Yes, and to the will to dominate. I uh, wonder where that comes from. Dun-dun-dun. Uh, Sounds like some uh, Sauron, uh, r- the rise of Sauron here. Could be, but you'll have to come back next episode to find out. <laughs> there you go. That's about as good of a cliffhanger as you can get. All right, so let's do a quick recap here, just so we can kind of get this in our heads. We had a big war with Morgoth, and some people helped and some people didn't and the people that helped they got to choose well uh two of the sons of the of, of the people who helped got to choose one guy elrond stayed in elf the other guy elros became a man and he became the first king of numenor and um numenor is an paradise island that was created for the dunedain who are people who helped the valar defeat morgoth and so this is sort of their paradise island. On the west side, they get to interact with the elves. On the east side, they get to interact with uh, sort of the more mundane people in the Middle Earth. But yet something rises and begins to fragment these two, this community. And so we then end up with the faithful and the loyalists. Does that seem right? That sounds right to me. Okay. So just a few things to watch, though, for next episode. Okay, what's that? Watch the trees. Mm -hmm. Watch the state of the shrine in the mountain. Okay. And watch the names of the kings. Got it. Okay, well, we'll see you on the next episode with the fall of Numenor. The Second Age Podcast is produced by the Lorehounds and published by Bald Move. 
You can send questions and feedback about this podcast to secondage at baldmove.com. For more Rings of Power content, subscribe to Dug Too Deep on your favorite podcast app. Ad-free versions of this and all other Bald Move podcasts can be yours by going to patreon.com slash baldmove. Check the show notes for reading recommendations and more info. Thanks for listening.